0: And welcome to the Council 4 Unplugged podcast. I'm Larry Dorman of Council 4. We are proud to represent 30,000 public service workers throughout the great state of Connecticut. And today we're going to talk about issues brewing in the state's judicial branch. My guests are Chuck Delarocco, who is the president of AFSME Local 4- 749. Hi, Chuck. Hello, how are you, Larry? Good, good. And Ron Nelson, who is the vice president of AFSME Local 4- 749. Hi, Ron. Good evening. Uh, And very serious issues to discuss today, Um, and I think the best way to start framing it is for Chuck, if you could describe uh, Ask Me Local 749's membership. 749 is uh, what I like to call a potpourri of job classes. We uh, have two contracts.
1: One is with the Division of Criminal Justice, where we represent... uh, criminal justice investigators, as well as the secretarial pool for the Division of Criminal Justice. And on the other side, uh, another contract is with the judicial branch and included in that is Public Defender's Office, where we have the public defender investigators as well as the public defender uh, secretaries. And in the judicial branch, we have uh, maintenance workers, uh, court report monitors we have clerical staff administrative clerks we have judges secretaries we have police officers we have um detention officers and we have actually central transportation officers who transport the juveniles we have a
0: a potpourri of Mm. job classes. Incredibly diverse and challenging, um, local, with with a lot of issues. And one of the uh, groups of workers you just mentioned are juvenile detention officers, which is what Ron is. And so perhaps, Chuck, if you don't mind, uh, tell our listeners what's going on with juvenile detention officers across Connecticut and the facilities in Bridgeport and Hartford.
1: Right. So we have two facilities. One, obviously, is in Bridgeport and the other one is in Hartford. And they are extremely understaffed. They're being required to come into work. Uh, and work double shifts uh, anywhere between three to five times. They have done up as much as five times. Uh, So literally working 16-hour days, three, four, five days in a row. Um, And so because of that, the reason why they're doing that is because they're understaffed. And we had layoffs back in 2016. Uh, 40 juvenile detention officers were laid off, and through attrition, uh, with retirements, resignations because of the safety issues that are happening there. We've lost over 60, approximately about 60, 60-plus 60 uh, detention officers that haven't been hired back due to budget cuts um, and the judicial branch not having the funds. Uh, so there's our biggest issue right now, and it's very uh, detrimental to the to the clientele that we represent.
0: And, Ron, you're a career juvenile detention officer, so um, tell our listeners what... It- What it's like to be a juvenile detention officer? What are the responsibilities that the job entails? What kind of um, what are we talking about in terms of the juvenile offender population?
2: Um, You know, give us a feel for what your job is like. All right. So our job is um, uh, mostly focused on direct. We're the direct line staff. Um, We um, we uh, basically uh, monitor population. We um, do the daily programming. We you know wake them up. Uh, in the morning, wake them up for breakfast, we take them to breakfast, we ensure they have their uniform, um, we give them expectations for the day, um, we bring them to school, um, we sit in the classroom with them, we, um, at times when we, um, we interact with them, we do counseling, we're, we're more like role models um, to them, we try to, to set the example of, of how they should act and, and treat each other, be respectful. Um, again, through the course of the day, they'll do their school. We um, do recreation with them, um, and then you know we you know provide everything that they need. We we take them on uh, transports uh, to uh, the court system. We do um, you know we we have a, a full medical staff in the facility. We, we do transitions that there, so we basically are in every spot wherever there's a juvenile um, to to cover the daily operation of the facility.
1: I actually like to think that they're the teachers, the parents, the siblings, the friends right. of these children. Because right. that's exact, they're right. there twenty four seven with these kids when right. they wake up, when they go to bed, and all the stuff in between. So that's their teachers, their counselors, their parents, their brothers and sisters to these kids. They're, you know, role models at times.
0: What kind of population uh, were we talking about in terms of age, and in terms of uh, who actually is, is being sent to these facilities, and why are they being sent to the juvenile? Detention? So
2: when I started, there was more there was there was more family with service need type kids, um, and then through the years, as the judicial branch changed its purview of juveniles. They um, they started taking on, uh, um, obviously they want the juveniles not to be in a detention center or locked up, so to speak, and they want them out as quickly as possible. Um, but the role has changed within the judicial branch, especially in the last couple of years. Um, they have um, have different programs that they put in with the raise the age from 16 and under to now 18 and under um, is our clientele. Um, and recently... Um, uh, within the last year, they changed the criteria to enter detention, which it has, the only way you can be brought in is with a judge's order. Um, and that and that's very significant because basically what they're saying is there are harm to themselves or the community, um, or a risk of running away or or being um, a wall. So those are the main criteria to be brought in um, to our facility until they can be, um, you know, given a placement or a direction as to where the branch wants to whether they send them home again or, or to another residential placement or um, they were sending them to CJTS, which closed down uh, Connecticut Juvenile Training School. We should add yes, and that closed. Down down around March, April of this year. Um, so now our population has pretty much doubled um, since the closure of CJTS. Um, and, and again, the clients now that we're getting are you know more serious juvenile offenders and they're repeat serious, ju- serious juvenile offenders. But um, we're keeping them longer term as opposed to getting them out within two, three weeks. They're staying two, three months now. So, Ron, let me ask you, and Chuck, you can chime in too, but...
0: You know, you, you work over at Bridgeport, so uh, you're experiencing uh, what what's been going on. How is understaffing causing problems uh, for you as the
2: worker? But um, how does it also impact the, the juvenile offenders? Okay, so it affects obviously affects the workers in in the sense that we're again we're we're being mandated or ordered to work you know uh, multiple shifts um, during a pay period, um, and and the the um, repercussions of that is you become overtired, you're overworked. Again, we're in a high stress situation with these juveniles. They're, they're very, um, they, they need a lot of attention. They're very manipulative. You always have to keep an eye on them because they're always attempting to, to get something um, from you or, or manipulate a situation. So you are always you always have to be on guard. You're on your highest sense of, uh, of awareness, um, self-awareness when you're in this with the population. Um, but what happens is when you become overtired, your your responses um, and your awareness aren't you, you're not um, up to your full capabilities, and that and that's the detriment to the clients because. You can't give your full attention. You can't give your best response. Again, we're we're trained to to self assess before we respond to a situation. And and again, if you're self checking yourself and you understand that you're stressed out, that you're you're over you're overtired, um, the, the clients see that, and and right. some may take advantage of it, and and some they they notice it and they and they you know they they tell you, hey Nelson, what, you know what are you doing? Why are you here again tonight? You know you're working here all night again. Yeah, that, that's what I got to do. You know, I'm, you know, I'm here for you guys. But they go, well, you know, they, and they even question you. Know, don't. When do you see your family? I, well, hopefully, I'll get an opportunity soon. You know. You,
1: you know, the, the juvenile detention officer's main job is they've got to be able to be on their toes. Um, we have to assess the situation. They have to respond to the situation, and that doesn't always mean hands on. Take the child down. That means that they have to be on their game to defuse situations. Now, these children, um, and we'll call them children, but some of them are quite large when they're seventeen. They they don't like you know when they're in a group setting. They don't like to be embarrassed by one another. So when they maybe they might have tripped and they look bad, or or they're being held to the side, you know, because they the the detention officer doesn't want them to go into the room. They kind of take offense to that, and that's where you need arrested juvenile detention officer to actually uh, assess the situation, able to work it out and verbally, you know, uh, de-escalate any situation that could arise. And that happens 24-7 with them because it could be when the child needs to go, you know, to the lunchroom or going from one rec room to another, or they're passing by other juveniles where there's like a, a, a gang rivalry that, that they have. And these detention officers, if they're not, if they're not on their game, you're going to have some problems, and that's the detriment to the child because not only are they there to do that, they're also there to help these kids, and they're there to help to cope with help them cope with the situation that they have. And when you only have you have nine juvenile detention, I'm sorry you have nine juveniles in one pod, and you only have one detention officer there, that you're not giving those ju- those nine juveniles the actual you know if you had two or three juvenile detention officers in there, now you can separate, you can start chatting. Hey, well, I saw that you were a little upset. Today? What's going on? And then, and that's where you start to help these children out. But the, what, what this is, it's not
0: happening. Right, no positive interaction. We are talking about juvenile detention issues. You're listening to the Council for AFSCME Unplugged podcast. That's Chuck Della Rocco, who is the president of AFSCME Local 749, and also here is Ron Nelson, who is the vice president of a local. Uh, Chuck is a state Supreme Court police officer. Yes, sir. And Ron, you are a juvenile detention officer. And we appreciate the, the public service that uh, both of you provide to the citizens of Connecticut. So, Ron, just kind of segue from what Chuck just said, uh, it it sounds, too, that um, you are placed in a precarious situation relative to injuries and relative to lack of rest. When we talk about being mandated to work overtime, combined with lack of staffing, what does that translate into a typical work week for you and your colleagues at the juvenile detention centers? And then, what what kind of situations are, are happening in terms of uh, workplace injuries? Yeah,
2: so a lot of the things that we do, again, there's a lot of policies and procedures that we are, you know, we have to follow for safety and security purposes. Doing uh, various things, room room checks, uh, friskers searches of the of the clients. Um, you know monitoring when uh, they're completing hygiene, uh, monitoring when they're in school, things of things of that nature. So we always have to be on our toes. Again, there's there's a lot of situations that come up in, in within the facility where when when you do attempt to address these situations where you know I might be by myself and I've been in a situation where I've had to you know I, I'm, I'm frisk searching a, a population by myself because there's not another officer to mm. monitor the juvenile the other you know seven or eight juveniles that are with me um, so then all of a sudden they, they start horse playing and next thing you know you know they start pushing uh, horse playing or fighting and then I have to now instead of completing a safety check, I'm you know trying to deescalate a situation that could be arising. Um, in those type of scenarios, they do happen, um, and, and then if, if if a fight does break out, or if you do redirect a client um, and they take offense to it, um, we've had officers attacked, um, we've had officers injured responding to these incidents, um, we've had officers who have called for assistance and, and have had to wait for you know a, a minute or two, which doesn't sound like a long time, but when you're trying to break up a fight or if you're being attacked, a minute or two is is significant. When if you had another officer, that situation could have been escalated or diffused or handled. Um, But again, officers have been injured. We've had people with knee injuries, back injuries, shoulder injuries. Um, And again, all this um, has, has crept up uh, to a point where, in, in our facility, we have a, about 20 officers out on long-term um, injuries. So break
0: that down further. What you're saying is not only are you chronically understaffed, but because of these serious injuries suffered uh, in the line of duty, um, that's making you even shorter staffed. So because people are out on compensation, they're injured.
2: Um, Correct. And what, yeah. what that leads what that leads into now is the the you know the, those workers are injured doing their job. And, and we understand that's that's the job that we signed up for. We we accept that, and we understand that's hazardous duty, and that's that's the the, the big piece of it, and we, and we know that. But when it goes down to, you know, the, the the staff is injured, that and then now that basically cuts our staff in less than a third to cover the rest of the shifts. Now you have other staff that are coming coming into work, um, again in in understanding that now you're going to come in and you're going to have to pick up the slack for them. Um, When the layoffs occurred in 2016, we all took on that responsibility that we were going to have to step up, work overtime because obviously the branch is short and we need to meet the needs of our clients. And that's, that's what a lot of us have been doing for over two years now. Um, the unfortunate piece of that is that's um, related um, and you can clearly see from when we the layoff started you can see, clearly see an escalation of a small amount of workmen's comp and you can see it trickle up and step up to the point that we're at now. Chuck, what kind of a- uh, overtime
0: hours uh, are are the workers in Hartford and Bridgeport having to put in? What are you hearing as you you talk to the the union members from September so each, each,
1: each shift they, you know, is an 8-hour shift and they're, you know, if they're being mandated 3 to 4 or, and I'm going to just average it out, let's just say three times a week. Uh, so three times, you know, eight, 21 extra hours. Um, and that's not including if they're called, ordered in on their days off that they have to where they actually have to work too. Uh, so it's, it's a significant amount of time. So
0: you're talking, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, 60 to 70 hours a week?
1: Could be more at times. Could be 80. It's... it's Quite astonishing, and the female staff has really seen that. They they, about two, three months ago, they were really getting hammered quite a lot. They were, you know, ordered in on their weekends off, Uh, so they didn't have any weekends off, and they were, you know, because they just didn't have the staff. There was no female staff, which is what we're, we're just sitting here shaking our heads. Not, we just don't get why. This isn't on people's radars. I mean, this is juvenile. These right. are juveniles we're dealing
0: with. And Ron, what kind of impact does that have on you and your coworkers, if you don't mind sharing personally? Because it sounds like uh, I'm just trying to figure out how you and, and uh, your, your colleagues at the juvenile detention centers have any Time to spend at home or with your families. It sounds like you don't.
2: Yeah, no, it's been it's been a major impact on our on our health and wellness, but you know also our personal lives. Just not having the time to attend functions of such as christenings. I've missed christenings. Um, I, I've missed uh, you know many family functions. Funerals. Um, funerals. Um, there's there's things that we just can't do, and we know that when we go to work there's. There's no, there's no realistic hope of being able to go home after your shift is over. You're going to be staying for the next shift. Um, again, my weekend to work is this weekend. I'm already under the impression that when I go in on Saturday and Sunday, I kiss my wife goodbye on Saturday morning, and I won't see her again until Monday. Mm.
1: You know, some of the sad part about this whole little uh, minimum staff. Stuff. Also, when these detention officers need to put need to put in for vacation time, we're in vacation mode right now, and they put in for a week-long vacation. They're given four days out of the five days, and the reason why they can't give them the fifth day is because. They don't have the personnel. So could you imagine trying to plan your vacation? You know, oh, we're going to go to Yosemite or we're going to do a cruise and we already paid for it. And you put your your request into your, uh, your boss and your boss says, yeah, I can give you the Monday and Tuesday. You got to come back to work on Wednesday, but then I can give you Thursday and Friday off. I mean, it's just unheard of, and that's what's going on here. So now, I mean, this is why it's become a snowball effect. And, you know, just a little knee-jerk reaction that I believe the branch is doing is, you know, they've made statements that they've hired 19, which we do know they have hired 19. That's still not enough, because then you split that up between the two centers. Right. We're 60-plus down. You're going to give 10 to one and 10 to another?
0: Right, and not all of the people the judicial branch has hired actually are juvenile detention officers. They have other functions and responsibilities responsibilities Correct. maintenance they've, they've,
1: but, they've so recently so. hired uh, food staff right. they've hired maintenance which
0: is important but again yes, they're not they're, they're not having the CEOs, interaction right. they with the kids so we're talking here on Council 4 Unplugged with the AFSME Local 749's Chuck Delaracco and Ron Nelson, and we're discussing the problems at the Hartford and Bridgeport Juvenile Detention Centers. So Chuck, what has been the union's response between Local 749 and, and Council 4? I understand there are, uh, are labor relations actions that we've taken in addition to other things we're trying to do. What are we? What are the solutions here?
1: So, you know, this is where the union has been very proactive. Um, we have filed numerous grievances, um, and, you know, it, the, the contract is clear on, on how you go about your grievances and the certain steps that the grievances have. And what, what we've had is that it's not something that's going to happen overnight. So there's there's certain amount of days in between that have to go in between a what they call a step one grievance and then a step two grievance. There's a certain amount of days. But the highest level that we can have uh, within the branch would be a step three grievance. And to get that to its end takes anywhere between... Uh, six months to eight months to actually get it heard. And sometimes it's not being heard, right. uh, which is another state-prohibited right. practice. But then after that, we will go to arbitration. But as that is going on, there's also some violations of the Labor Act, uh,
0: CIRA which is the State... Employee uh, Employee Relations Act. ...Relations Act,
1: that we, uh, that the branch, we believe the branch has violated, and we take them to the Labor Board.
0: And and to make it clear for our listeners, a grievance, and this is why unions are important, quite Mm -hmm. frankly, a a grievance... is obviously a situation where the union is alleging a violation of a collective bargaining agreement, uh, a state-prohibited practice, is uh, the union is alleging that the employer has actually broken the laws of Connecticut, the labor laws of Connecticut. Correct. So both are serious in their own right. Correct. So you're using the labor relations process to at least address the unsafe working conditions run, and, and hopefully that will bear some fruit down the line, but
2: it's not immediate. Yeah, it's something that we address at each level of management. So each level of management's made aware of a situation, so we can hopefully resolve it. Um, we've we've gone through the grievance process as well as labor management, which we have a we we've. You know, bring out all these issues at labor management, which is human resources. Um, so they're all made well aware of the situation. Um, the issues with the females was something that was was more profound um, in December, and it's actually expanded into all detention officers now, um, where you know they were being ordered to work their weekends off, denied vacation time or time off requests um, solely because of the fact that they were female, um, and they don't have they didn't have enough female staff be, because. We've had female officers quit because of the working conditions. We've had um, at least three that have quit within the last six months. As difficult as the working conditions
0: have been and you mentioned before you, you knew what you were getting into when you became a juvenile detention officer. It's a challenging job under any circumstance. Do you at least feel that uh, Having a union has helped, and having a union has at least um,
2: gotten you to the table to address the problems. It definitely has. It gives us it gives us a venue to to at least speak to a supervisor, explain all the facts of the situation. Again. We put it we present everything that we have not just myself but all the detention officers that have issues um, we've all stand, stood together on this um, on the, all these issues and again every, everybody's speaking out that there's issues going on that need to be addressed again the human resources and ju- judicial branch ha- they haven't really addressed them to you know to a satisfactory level and, you know it's, and it's hurting and it's actually hurting our members and it's really hurting our clients as well because the staff that comes to work is trying to give their best, and, and it's hard to continuously, day after day, do that when you're fatigued, burned out, um, and stressed out from, from not being able you know, to get enough rest. And think about it. If you work 16 hours, you have to be back within eight hours to start another shift. Between drive time and actually falling asleep after you know, getting yourself together when you get home, some of these people are getting less than four hours rest in between a shift to, to come back to you know, work another double. You know, uh, some of these de-
1: detention officers, and, and I would say union members of a whole, they don't really understand what your local actually does for you. Um, you know, and our local, with the help of our parent union, uh, Council 4, w- we we argue the collective bargaining, and that and that's where uh, when we looked at this, Ron and I and our whole executive board, we went through the steps and did whatever as much as we could through the grievance process, which is the collective bargaining issue, through the uh, state prohibited practice issue, and we are now at the point where we're waiting, and and I could just imagine what our members are feeling, and then they hear about this Janice decision, and so they're sitting back if they're not involved and they don't understand, they're going to look at it union and go, they're doing nothing for me. I'm paying X amount of dollars, and I get nothing for it. They're not doing anything. And here we are, we're trying to tell, and this is every union in in, uh, AFSCME uh, in the state of Connecticut, and I'm sure I'm not familiar with other states, but in this state, I know for a fact that our AFSCME unions are working. And I can tell you, we can show grievances that we started right off the bat in October of 2015 continuously through to today, through numerous labor charges. We have tried to do this uh, through arbitrations, which we have won, um, and the members need to realize that Janus, this Janus decision that came down, which is about fees, payers, and dues payers, to me is just a, it's a crock. It's a it's smokescreen. It's a, a smokescreen, smoke and it's right. a way that they try to weaken unions because, you know, I, I, I keep telling people in, our, in the in the judicial branch and the division of criminal justice, as well as the office of the public defender, that look what they're doing to you when you have a union. Just imagine if you didn't.
0: Right. We're going to have a lot more to talk about with juvenile detention centers, I think. So it sounds like we'll be doing some public actions hopefully soon, and uh, we're going to keep speaking out. uh, So uh, you keep the faith, Ron.
2: Will do. I mean, we work with you know a great clientele. We work uh, great brothers and sisters that we work in these uh, facilities. They're working as hard as they can to, to meet the needs of our clients, and um, we're trying to give them as much as we can. And we're, we're just asking for a little respect from the judicial branch. Yep. Closing thoughts, Chuck. No, I uh, I think this
1: is a, an extremely important uh, topic. Uh, I, I applaud Council 4 for doing this. Uh, this is definitely the way it should be done and that uh, this is a serious issue because if it's happening with our, our youth in our state, uh, and, and that's a problem and that's a big problem. And you know, take, take aside the, the safety issues that we talk about of our own juvenile detention officers. How in the world can our state allow the safety issues to go on with the juveniles? And that's what the whole reason why we're locking them up is not only to protect the citizens outside, but also to protect the juvenile who's having these coping issues, you know.
0: Right. It's Sad. supposed to be about um, juvenile rehabilitation Correct. so that these kids can get back into the community and hopefully lead productive lives. Yep. So I thank both of you, for, again, for your service to the people of Connecticut. We've been talking to Chuck DeLaRocco, president of ASME Local 749 and a state Supreme Court police officer, as well as Ron Nelson, a juvenile detention officer at Bridgeport and the vice president of Local 749. Thank you, gentlemen. As always, thanks for listening to our Council for Unplugged podcast. You can find us on all major. Social platforms by searching for Council for AFSME. Our website is council4.org. My name is Larry Dorman, and you've been unplugged.